Welcome to Lyme Dialogues, the podcast about Lyme disease. My name is Angela Knight. I'm a journalist and I'll be speaking to Lyme patients about their symptoms, how the disease has affected their lives and information on the latest news. speaking to Chris Newby, the award-winning science writer at Stanford University, California. Chris has two engineering degrees, including an MA from Stanford. She became ill with Lyme disease in 2002, and later was the senior producer of the Lyme disease documentary, Under Our Skin. She is the author of the book, Bitten, the history of Lyme disease and biological weapons, which is her quest to get proof that the 1960s outbreak in Connecticut and Long Island had been caused by a bioweapons release. She calls it America's Chernobyl disaster. Chris joins me now from her home in Palo Alto, California. Welcome to Lyme Dialogues, Chris. And um, before we get on to discussing your book, Bitten. Can you tell me how you became interested in Lyme disease? Yes, well, it's personal. In 2002, my family went to Martha's Vineyard, an island off Massachusetts. And uh, after the vacation, uh, we came back to California and both my husband and I got sicker than we'd ever been before. And for the next year, every day got worse. We went to 10 doctors and it cost us $60,000 no one would test us for Lyme disease because they said it was a rare disease. And finally, well, about nine months later, they tested us and I tested positive for Lyme twice. And at that time, we were at a big academic medical center and they said, oh, you couldn't possibly have Lyme disease because it's so rare, both of you, it would be like winning the lottery. So <laughs> we were fired by them because they didn't believe in chronic Lyme and they hadn't diagnosed us in a year. And so uh, I went to the internet, Dr. Google, and found a very experienced Lyme physician or Lyme specialist in my neighborhood. And then after we entered into her care, we slowly got better. Within six months, my husband was back to about 80%. And then it took me about a year because we had two tick-borne co-infections, Lyme disease and Babesia. That's a malaria-like disease. So how long was it before you felt completely better? It took us really, I would say, about five years. We were mostly on oral antibiotics just because that's what insurance would pay for. But it never quite got to the high concentration levels in our tissue since the the organisms hide out in your tissue and your brain. I really wasn't better until I had had intravenous antibiotics in in sort of a cocktail to hit the two forms of Borrelia burgdorferi. There's a spirochetal form and then there's a cell wallace form. So you take two different antibiotics to get both of those. And then my husband had a couple relapses over the last 10 years until he had intravenous. Can you recommend a particular treatment? Well, I'm not a doctor. And, you know, when I had the disease in 2003, there have been a lot more nuanced advancements to the protocols. So I would just suggest you go to a, a website like LymeDisease.org and see the latest recommendations from physicians who are on the front lines of really treating this. Well, turning to your book, Bitten, 
Can you just remind us about when and where there was an outbreak of this unknown new disease, which eventually became called Lyme disease? Yeah, so what I discovered as I got deeper into this book is there are two Lyme disease stories. There's a public-facing story that really starts in 1982 when Willie Brigdorfer published an article in Science Magazine that said, hey, all these people were sick around Lyme, Connecticut, New York City, Long Island, Massachusetts, and I discovered this new organism, which I'll name after myself, Borrelia burgdorferi. It's a spirochete, so it's a spiral-shaped bacteria, and this is the cause of this illness. So I guess while I was recovering from Lyme disease, the five years after, I worked on a documentary on Lyme disease called Under Our Skin, which you can watch for free with Amazon Prime. And um, that really, I really, for three and a half years, did the deep dive into politics. I talked to hundreds of patients, hundreds of experts. And what I realized is that what academic medicine was saying about Lyme disease and what was actually happening to patients in the field was like vastly different. And that paralleled the experience of my husband and I. So this film, what I wanted to do is show that these people who were sick were truly sick. They were just like your neighbors, your mother, your father, their lawyers, teachers, nurses. You know, this wasn't some hypochondriac manifestation to get attention. These people are truly sick and the medical system is abandoning them. So as I got deeper into the research, I realized there's more to this disease than people are saying. The government, for some reason, isn't being forthright about this disease. It was pretty obvious. The Lyme disease pathogen Borrelia burgdorferi was named after the scientist Willy Burgdorfer. 20 years later in 1983. Can you give us some background on Willie and who he was and how he came to be working on this research? Yes, uh, Willie Bergdorfer was from Basel, Switzerland, came from a working class family. His dad was a homicide detective and a Nazi spy hunter during World War II. His parents put their best hopes on Willie. They wanted him to rise to the higher class, and so they did everything they could to get him into the scientific university track in Switzerland. He went to the Swiss Tropical Institute and got a PhD, equivalent of a PhD, in medical zoology, which was parasitology. He specialized in researching Borrelia inside of ticks, mostly African ticks, which is the same genus as Borrelia burgdorferi. That was his specialty. He was recruited out of Swiss Tropical Institute into an American lab, Hamilton, Montana, which was the go-to place for ticks in the U.S. You know, it was there because that's where people discovered the most deadly tick-borne disease back at the turn of the century, which is rickettsia rickettsii, it's Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And so that's where all the expertise was. So he went there in 1952 fell in love with the place, but almost immediately got recruited into the biological weapons program, where the U.S. government was expanding their capability of weaponizing fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes. So that was not known widely until my book came out. And it was sort of a shock when later he told me that he believed that the outbreak around Lyme, Connecticut, was caused by a biological weapons experiment. And that's where I look backwards. You know, there's a public facing story starts in 82, but I look backwards and said, okay, what happened in the 60s, 70s to the 80s? It's not like this germ all of a sudden showed up. And that's where I sort of tied this outbreak into the biological weapons program in the book. And you can see possibly cause and effect. (laughs) And you met him a couple of times. You interviewed him for your documentary, Under Our Skin. 
Did you reveal anything then? Well, the rumors that Lyme disease was related to the biological weapons programs were always swirling about, but no one had really dug up any hard evidence. Uh, there were rumors about Plum Island having an accident, but no hard proof. What happened when Andy Wilson, who is the director of, and producer of the Under Our Skin, we wanted the film to be fair and balanced and talk to people on both sides of the controversies surrounding Lyme disease, but it turned out that no one in the government would go on camera. I mean, the disease was so political and highly charged, they said, no way. And so we said, well, we'll interview Willie Bergdorfer because he's retired, he's a private citizen. So we flew out to Hamilton, Montana, and as we were setting up the lights, there was a knock on the door and someone from the lab says, I was asked to sit in on this interview. There's things Willie can't talk about. So that was a very tense moment. It was sort of shocking to us. And we didn't let the lab person in. But during that interview, Willie was so flustered, he did say things that we heard for the first time in that he said that the NIH, the government knew that Lyme disease could be chronic versus in the literature, they were saying, no, two to four weeks of doxycycline can cure it. He also said that Lyme disease is particularly damaging to the developing neurological system of children. And then at the end of the interview, as we we're packing up, he said other things too. He said he believed that the research was rigged for Lyme disease. You can read the transcripts online and watch him say that. And, and then when we turned off the cameras, he had this little mischievous smile and he said, I didn't tell you everything. So, you know, we knew there was more there, but he wouldn't talk anymore and we had to get the film out. And it wasn't till years later, that was in 2007 and 2013, I went out to see him again for the book and he revealed even more with jaw-dropping information. It is a beautiful documentary, Under Our Skin and Emergence. You've won many awards for it as well. He also gave an interview for another film on bioweapons and made astonishing revelations there. That, that was really what sort of propelled me to go forward with the book. And that was Tim Gray, who did a film about Lyme and bioweapons called Under the Eight Ball. He went out after that film was released to see Willie and had quite a long interview and got Willie to say that he thought that the outbreak of sickness that we call Lyme disease now was caused by a biological weapon that was developed in his lab during the Cold War, 50s, 60s. So Willie Bergdorfer, he was a made man at age 52, I think, when he discovered Lyme disease, which was fairly late, you know, to gain fame as a scientist. And for him to say, well, that discovery is based on a lie, I maybe didn't discover the disease, but I just identified it from past work, you know, is sort of shocking. So it had a certain weight of credibility given his reputation as a very legitimate scientist. And so that was really, when this documentarian shared this interview, I watched it over and over and said, yeah, I think he's telling the truth. And I think this information needs to get out there. So you wanted to also find out the truth after his so-called confession. So what evidence did you find? Well, right after that, I got that video clip of the confession, then the National Archives, uh, I heard that they released Willie's scientific papers over his 34 years in the Rocky Mountain Labs uh, to Maryland. So I flew out to Maryland and with the documentarian and we, we went through his files. And the thing that was just strange was that in the time frame where Lyme disease was discovered, there was very little paper or evidence or images from his discovery, which is weird, you know. And it was a missing piece. It was a missing piece of the puzzle. So 
in that time frame where Lyme disease was discovered, there was this organism that had not been officially identified that was called Swiss agent. And it looked like all the blood samples from the patients around Lyme, Connecticut, tested positive for this Swiss agent. And I couldn't find it in the open literature on Google. So I said, well, the only way to get the answer to this is to, to visit Willie. So I flew out November of 2013 and I interviewed him for a couple hours. And he has advanced Parkinson's. He thinks it's from when he got Lyme disease as he was investigating the Lyme disease outbreak from rabbit urine. That's what he said. But when I was there, he just decided to tell it all. And he says, when I came out to the United States in 52, I was in the biological weapons program and they had me trying to mass produce ticks so that they can be dropped on the enemies. He says, I was working on putting plague in fleas so they could be dropped on the enemies. And, you know, he seems sort of guilty about it. He says, I worked on Colorado tick fever virus, developing that as a weapon. I believed him and I thought, there's a story here and it needs to be told because so many people are sick from tick-borne diseases. And, you know, my research showed that the outbreaks happened way earlier than the public record. It was late 60s, which was the height of the biological weapons program. It was when the military was going crazy testing aerosolized microbes as weapons. And some of those can be spread by ticks. So that started my research. Uh, what I realized is that the biological weapons program was as big, almost as big and secretive as the Manhattan Nuclear Project. So getting a hold of those documents was really difficult. And at a certain point, I hit a wall because those weren't available to the public. And then I had a lucky break. <laughs> it just seems extraordinary that when there was this outbreak in the 70s, Willie, who was the expert, was sent to Switzerland for eight months. Yeah, and that's what I realized going through old newspapers and letters, because I, I did get a lot of like original letters from Willie Bergdorfer. The thing that was unusual was, as you read the newspapers, you realize the hysteria around this new disease around Lyme, Connecticut, and Long Island, and, and Nantucket, et cetera. It was huge. It was like as big as the COVID hysteria, because so many people were sick, some people were dying. And so there was a lot of pressure on the government to figure out what it was. Now, their number one tick expert at the time was Willie Bergdorfer in Hamilton. So he was called in late into the game to analyze the blood that had been collected from patients and the juices from the ticks around that area to analyze it. And what he identified when he first got those samples is a rickettsia, which is a very small bacteria. It's almost the size of a virus. And it was very close to Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, the most deadly tick-borne disease in the U.S., but it didn't test positive for any known rickettsias in his library of tests. And so all of a sudden, at the height of the investigation in 1978, the NIH sent him to Switzerland to collect ticks, 4,000 ticks. Now, that was just weird because the, the documentation justifying this trip in Switzerland was that he needed to look into this horrible disease that was affecting goat herders in the Swiss Alps. You know, like it was a national crisis if we couldn't get Swiss cheese, <laughs> you know, <laughs> didn't matter about these Lyme patients that you're in the middle of the investigation. So that was just really fishy to me. And so what happens is he collects these 4,000 ticks in Switzerland and he takes those ticks back to the lab and they develop an assay for that, that new rickettsial he discovered in Switzerland, which he named Swiss agent. And sure enough, the people who are sick in Lyme, Connecticut test positive for that Swiss agent. 
Now, birds do not fly from Switzerland to Lyme, Connecticut. That's not like a bird flyway zone. So that raised a lot of flags to me. And to me, what that really said is, did Willie really discover a new organism or did he identify it from a bioweapon that he knew was used in Europe, you know, during the Cold War? And, you know, Willie did take credit for the Swiss agent discovered in Switzerland, but he never acknowledged after a certain point the existence of the Swiss agent in America. And to this day, there's nothing there. And what Willie told me was this Riquetzel was in everything. He says it was in more patients than the spirochetes. But I was told to sweep it under the rug, to find photos without that rickettsia in them, in my discovery article. So to me, it smells like a cover-up. And then it was shortly after having discovered this historic Swiss agent US that it was all forgotten. And there was this new discovery of Lyme disease, which had a spirochete, and they named it Lyme disease. Yeah, so it's within a year, there were letters back and forth between Yale and Willie and the NIH saying, this is so exciting. We've discovered what this new disease is. It's caused by this rickettsia. That makes sense. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of 80, every mention of the Swiss agent USA disappeared. In fact, I had an early draft of his science discovery article that mentioned this strange rickettsia that hadn't been identified. And in this early handwritten draft of the discovery article, he goes, well, we need to keep this on the radar because we don't know if it's significant. Is it part of the problem of the Lyme disease outbreak, this rickettsia, plus the spirochete, or is it really the cause? And then by the time the final article came out, that section was gone, and no one ever heard of Swiss Agent USA again. So what my book says is a call to action is, is there a rickettsia involved in this illness, especially in 20% of the people with supposedly Lyme disease who are treated with the standard protocol stay sick? Are they sick because it's rickettsia? Yes, that comes through loud and strong, and I think it's a very credible thought. You decided to go to see Willie yourself, and you filmed him. Did he mention any other revelations to you? Um, the fact that he was worked for the Fort Detrick, the, the headquarters of the Biological Weapons Program, that he was weaponizing Colorado tick fever virus, that he was mass-producing ticks and mosquitoes for the Bioweapons Program, they were putting yellow fever in the mosquitoes. You know, that was a starting point. After that interview, though, I couldn't confirm a lot of what he said in the public literature. And then I had a lucky break in that Willie, as he was getting towards the end of his life, I think was feeling guilty about that work. And he had a Mormon friend in Montana. He trusted Mormons. So he called a Mormon professor at BYU because he knew BYU in Utah had a nice historical archive and said, hey, I have some of my original lab books notes from the Lyme discovery that I didn't give the U.S. government. They're hiding out in this other garage that he has on his property. It was a garage that was tucked in the corner. So when the NIH came to collect those papers, he laughed and he said they didn't know all the good stuff was in this garage. So this Mormon professor drove up to Hamilton, Montana with his daughter, and they loaded all the papers that he wanted archived and brought them back. And this professor knew that I was working on Willie's biography just because he's part of the Lyme world. And he called me up and says, do you want to look at them before they're archived at the university? And I said, yes. And so one of the really amazing discoveries there was in one of these boxes, dusty old boxes, there was a browned, old, curled folder that said Fort Dietrich, written in ink pen, 1952 to 1957, I think. And on top of that folder, there was a yellow sticky. And it was written in Willie's distinctive handwriting in a juicy red pen 
And he always picked up his red pen if he was writing something really important. And it says, I always wondered why somebody didn't do something. And then I realized I'm somebody. So it was like a confession from the dead that he knew what he was doing was borderline. And it, you just got the sense that he felt like the U.S. biological weapons program had gone too far. And being the Swiss gentleman that he is, you know, maybe he would even the playing field. So we opened up that folder and it just had all the really dark sort of biological weapons experiments in there. He was putting a very deadly virus from Trinidad into mosquitoes. It's called the Trinidad agent. And it was a bunch of his tick weaponization programs. I won't go into the individual bacteriums, but you could just see the size of the, the biological weapons program from that work. That's like stuff that wasn't available anyplace else. And did you find also some deposit slips? He hid a bunch of his financial receipts all over the place. I don't know if he didn't want his second wife to find it or what, but tucked in the technical documents were receipts. Uh, there was a receipt for a Swiss bank account that appears to be secret that was opened in 74, right after he had attended a, a conference in Austria where there were a lot of Russians there. And at the time I was finishing up the book, Willie died, or in the middle of it, I guess. And it turned out that he died with more money than anyone in his family knew. And they didn't know about the secret Swiss bank account. All of a sudden that raised like a new investigative line is like, where did he get this money? Because as a public servant for 34 years, I know his salary, it's public record. So how did he end up with all this money, even though he had huge family expenses, out of state college fees, a sick wife, and where did he get this money? And then to add more mystery to it, Willie told me and several others that in the 2000s, right after 2001, two crews of men in black from the government, he wasn't sure if they were FBI or State Department, had grilled him on missing virulent biological weapons agents from a freezer that he had access to. And he told me, I think the Russians stole it. <laughs> and, you know, that raised the question, once you know about this money, did they steal it from him and pay him because he had <laughs> intense money needs? You know, so that was just another part of the mystery. And then it, that brings out, like, if there was a biological weapons accident, was it planted by the Russians or was it truly an accident in the program? So, I, you know, I, I would have liked to wrap everything up, but in a way, the book raised more questions by the end of it than I anticipated. <laughs> yes. And in the book, you also expose why the CDC and IDSA made such poor guidelines for Lyme which is important because the U.S. guidelines were followed by Europe and other countries around the world. Yeah, and I, I would say the IDSA guidelines have been frozen in time since 2006, essentially. In what disease category does science not progress between, you know, 2020 and 2006? So Lyme patients are stuck with that. And I go into this in the film with a little bit of evidence, but the people who were around during the 80s, and they're all in their 70s, late 70s now, they looked at the discovery of this germ as an Oklahoma land grab in that the rules in the U.S. had just changed. So you could patent test kits and vaccines based on a new discovery of a, an organism. So evolution creates this organism over millions and millions of years, yet a scientist can just identify a gene sequence and patent it and make money off of it. So... I believe that these scientists rushed in and made test kits and vaccines before they really understood 
the pathogenesis of this microbe, like how it really infects humans. And so the test kits turned out are not very good, only 50% accurate. And the vaccine that they helped develop was pulled from the market for a variety of reasons. But we are somehow stuck with that disease definition, test kits, you know, 25 years later, and it hasn't moved on. And a lot of it is because these academic researchers are sort of invested in this original definition and, and everything, and they don't want to move on. They don't want to say they're wrong, and, and the, the disease is underfunded. So I explain that in the, maybe more eloquently in the film. You know, just it's a complicated disease, the politics, and there are a lot of factors. It's not one simple answer of what went wrong. It really became a Lyme disease war, though, didn't it? With a lot of patients really frustrated about being kept ill, not being treated, not being diagnosed properly. And in 2013, after freedom of information requests had been ignored for five years, the CDC eventually released 3,000 pages of censored emails. But they did reveal that the CDC was a key player in fanning the flames of this Lyme disease war. And they said in these emails, this is a war with patients. It's time to start shooting back. Can you explain what their tactics were? Well, it was a disinformation war. They would plant articles that were anti-patient. And in some ways, I still see that happening as a new vaccine is being developed and the same scientists that were involved in the regular vaccine have their hands out with this one and they're complicit in pre-selling the vaccine. And they did things like they would harass patients, use false identities on the internet to discredit patients and spread disinformation. For example, a professor at Yale, who's now emeritus, collaborated with an NIH person who talked about possibly developing a fake medical journal about tick-borne diseases and then accepting patient and clinician articles and then saying, surprise, it's a fake journal. You're so stupid. You know, so it just like feels like middle school tactics to discredit patients, but it really shouldn't be that way. You know, <laughs> there's a certain history. It's polarized, like almost like the Democrats and the Republicans now. And what I was trying to do in the book is to bridge the divide and not be inflammatory to either side, but say, maybe both sides are right. The academics are saying, hey, these people aren't all sick with Lyme disease. Lyme disease is no big deal. You know, and the patients are saying, yeah, we're really sick and you need to help make us better and not just spend all your energy trying to convince people that we're crazy. So what my book says is, you know, with the standard Lyme disease treatment protocol, 15 to 20% of the patients aren't cured and they go on to have lingering symptoms. So my book says maybe there's a second tick-borne co-infection that is creating this chronic illness because everyone knows if you have multiple germs at once, you're going to be sicker. And maybe one of those germs is biological weapon. Maybe it's not, but let's not just wear these lime colored glasses because that's where the researchers are getting grants. Let's look at the bigger picture. Patients are sick because of mixed tick-borne infections. Let's look at all the infections and make sure we have a treatment strategy to address those. And if these germs were bioweapons, it explains really why they were designed not to show up on standard antibody-based screening tests. Right. I mean, I read Pentagon documents that said, oh, these tick-borne weapons are the perfect stealth weapons because you can drop these ticks on enemy territory and no protective clothing can protect the soldiers and the area will be constantly dangerous, you know. 
And they even did studies to say, okay, if we nuke an area and we release entomological weapons, will the population be even sicker? It was part of their warped total economic warfare. You know, they did that on the Cubans. I had a witness that said he was a CIA operative. He dropped poison ticks on the Cuban sugar cane workers. This was Operation Mongoose. And objective of Operation Mongoose, which had 100 plots embedded in it, and this was just one, oh, Cuba's main sugar crop is sugar. And if we make all the, the workers sick, then the population will revolt and kick out Castro. So <laughs> there's no oversight in the CIA to say, well, you know, Cuba's just 50 miles as the crow flies from Florida. Or, you know, is the blowback going to hurt our citizens? Those plots on Cuba, they were designed at Fort Detrick, where Willie Bergdorfer was working. Yes. So Willie's home was in Hamilton, Montana, but he had many contracts with Fort Detrick, the biological weapons headquarters, which is right outside of D.C. And within Fort Detrick, there was also embedded a CIA group called Special Operations Division. And they did the crazy assassination attempts, LSD mind control, um, chemistry for control. <laughs> they had Willie at one point looking at tick paralysis. Wouldn't that be useful if you could put that in a dark gun and shoot a guard or a, a guard dog? You know, Willie was like Agent Q for tick-borne stuff. Well, your father was a U.S. Navy pilot, and he told you not to get yourself killed over this book. Were there any attempts to stop you from publishing it? Well, I had a lot of people warn me that I needed to watch my back, including some people who worked for the CIA and were in biosecurity, because the stakes of letting this information out are, are pretty big. You know, if you look at the Agent Orange damages legally or Tuskegee experiment, it would be costly for the government to admit this right now. I personally never felt like my life was in danger, but I know when I went to Hamilton, Montana, which has a bio level four lab, I was being surveyed. Um, at one point, I highly suspect they were reading my emails because someone came up to me in the restaurant and mentioned three things that were in my emails that week, which were really bizarre. <laughs> so I'm sure that was happening under the Patriot Act. So I had to keep things really quiet. And then once the book came out, I think I was worried, but no one has come and discredited anything major in the book. And mostly the government has remained mum about the book. They know it's credible enough. They don't want to call attention to it. I must say, I used to think Willie Bergdorfer was the hero in this story. But after reading your book, I'm not so sure. Do you think they named the spirochete or the Lyme disease after him just to keep him quiet? That is my strong suspicion. And Certainly, I've talked to the people that worked alongside him in the discovery, and they fact-checked the discovery chapter, and they feel a great deal of resentment that Willie got so much credit for the discovery when really, like most things in science, it was a team effort. And I could tell Willie had a great deal of guilt at the end of his life about some of the things he did. So it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Have there been any positive results from your book? I would say every week I get really good feedback from patients, from people who are researching Cold War mysteries like I have done over the years. It took five years of research to get this out. And then I get secret love letters from some scientists who thank me for really shining light on new evidence on the outbreak and how it happened. And for example, just shining a light on the importance of rickettsias in the disease manifestations that we're seeing in the mysterious Swiss agent. 
And then also the book has won two international awards, the Nautilus Award and International Book Awards, which is great acknowledgement. And then it's been picked up by a film crew in Manhattan. So they want to do a Netflix style TV series. So hopefully that'll be out in a year or two. Brilliant. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. And isn't there a congressman who's taken up your cause? Oh, yes. I forgot about that. So Chris Smith from New Jersey read the book. And of course, his state is right near New York and it's very impacted by Lyme disease. And he says this, he waved it in front of C-SPAN and said, this book is really credible. And, you know, if the military had these open air, uncontrolled experiments on ticks like they did in Virginia with radioactive ticks and who knows what happened around Lyme, Connecticut, he says, we need the government to declassify these documents because it will give a leg up to our researchers to know, okay, what tick-borne diseases were released where from planes, trucks, ships, and on the government research side, what kind of cures and treatments did they develop? Because anytime you develop a bioweapon, you have to have something to protect your soldiers. So let's declassify all that. And I know I've been trying for years to get to those documents, and it's really hard. And a lot of them were destroyed. So it's been 50 years since those experiments. It's time to release them and move on. And, you know, and if the government broke it, they need to fix it. The US and the UK government were working together. Do you have any evidence of? tests taking place in this country? I don't have hard evidence of that. I know that when Willie Bergdorfer first came to Hamilton, Montana, one of his first meetings was in Canada, right outside of Calgary at Suffield Experimental Station. And that was a big meeting where they were sharing information about bug-borne weapons. And I know high-level people from the UK were there and Canada and the US. So they were sharing information there. I know that there was anthrax experiments on Gruyere Island off the UK. That's proven. The thing about Swiss agent makes me think that there were open air tests around the communist territories with ticks. I suspect that. I know there was a lot of travel to Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia, which were both communist controlled at that time. But no, I have not found any proof. I'm still looking. But the fact that the same organism was in Switzerland on the border of Germany and France, that Swiss agent, and it was also in the U.S., it makes me think, hmm, you know, how could that be? <laughs> you may get some more declassified reports from Father Christmas, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. I've got many requests still in. <laughs> I know you guys are suffering from the same guidelines that we're suffering under, and it's just, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, I can almost not read the articles from that cabal anymore. It makes me want to drink heavily. <laughs> they just are in, so in a rut. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe it's been 50 years, isn't it? I know, I know. My, my husband has very little appetite for following the week-to-week scandals. And so when this book came out, we started going to more Lyme conferences. And he just shook his head and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe that nothing has changed in 10 years since your film came out, you know. It's not nothing. A lot of the research is happening behind the scenes, but on the surface, so little has changed on the front line for patients. I I did notice that with your film, because although it is 10 years old, it's very up to the minute. (laughs) I know, unfortunately. (laughs) I hate that. I, I mean, I was hoping it would change more. It saved a lot of patients. You know, they watch it, they show it to their family, and all of a sudden there's more understanding Sometimes they give them to their doctors and their doctors are more empathetic. But I don't think it changed many doctors' minds because they're sort of set in their ways. That is also the stumbling block 
changing the medical knowledge. I know, it's hard, very slow. And do you see any parallels between COVID-19 and Lyme disease? A, A lot of parallels, actually. And it really brings up the question, when there's a freaky new outbreak of disease, is it natural or unnatural? And so as part of the research process of looking into whether Lyme disease was a bioweapon or not, you know, I I read the scientific literature on natural versus unnatural. So this one seminal article on that says, well, first of all, is this outbreak a point source outbreak? And so Lyme disease, there was two point source outbreaks. There was one in Wisconsin and then one here with COVID. It was Wuhan. And then is it, uh, <laughs> I have the, the clues, is it a highly unusual event with large numbers of casualties? You know, in both cases, yes. Was there higher morbidity and mortality than is expected? Both diseases, yes. And is it an uncommon disease? Yes. And then point source outbreak. Clue number five is multiple epidemics. And then what I found in my research is there were three freaky new diseases that came out in the late 60s, right at the height of the biological weapons program. You know, it was the spotted fever rickettsia, the Lyme arthritis, which was caused by the spirochete. And then there was Babesia, which my husband and I got, the cattle parasite, first in man. Well, I think our time is up, Chris, but that's (laughs) been absolutely fascinating. And I really did enjoy your book and also the documentaries. I think they're fantastic. And I'll put them on the website so that people can find them. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Angela. I, you, you very much researched the area completely. Do you have Lyme disease yourself? Yes, I do. Uh, well, I've had it for 25 years. And how are you doing? I'm doing fine, apart from chronic fatigue. So mm. things could be a lot worse. Mm. I had to have a sleep this afternoon before I <laughs> talk to you. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. Very sad. But um, no, there are a lot more people worse off than me. And I'm so glad okay. that you're better too. Yeah, I just feel, I feel like my husband and I were the lucky ones. This never would have been the path I would have chosen for my life, but it's been pretty satisfying. And I'm just so uh, determined to keep other people from going through what our family went through. I mean, it's just so devastating emotionally and financially and socially. To me, it's been a huge injustice uh, and it's so avoidable just with education. So that's what's what I'm trying to do is educate people. Yes. Well, thank you for talking to Lyme Dialogues, Chris. It's been great meeting you and I really enjoyed your book. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Chris. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. who would be interested in Chris's story, please share this podcast. And if you'd like to tell me your story, please contact me by email at limedialogues at gmail.com or by Instagram at lime underscore dialogues at Instagram. Thank you for listening to Lime Dialogues. Take care and goodbye.